Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Timon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Karen Koch-Tusman, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. On today's pod, takeaways from our BioCentury survey of how biotechs are thinking through the Inflation Reduction Act. We'll also have a look at CMS's guidance on the IRA. We'll check in on what's on tap in BioCentury's distillery and take a look at engineered T-cell companies. But first, BioCentury this week is sponsored by Jado Capital, a leading global private equity company with a patient benefit-driven approach that finances and accelerates the development and growth of groundbreaking medical innovation. Jado empowers and supports managers through its expert integrated multi-talented team and by investing significant capital to ensure the growth of companies, building market leaders in their respective therapeutic areas with accelerated patients access globally in Europe and the US in particular. Based in Paris with a presence Elsewhere in Europe and in the U.S., JATO has more than 500 million euros under management and a rapidly growing portfolio of investments. All right, biotechs and pharmas alike are bracing for the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act. We wanted to see how they were thinking through this. Head in the sand, bull by the horns. Simone, I'd like to bring you in here. What were the most surprising findings from our survey? So, Jeff, we've talked about so many things related to this. I am not sure that Steve or I is yet ready to be surprised by anything here. Um, <laughs> but it, it is very interesting. So I think that one thing I want to say is about a quarter of the companies we spoke to, I wouldn't say they have their head in the sand. I would say they're figuring it out. I think a lot of companies... Maybe Steve may have his own opinion. Maybe they've got over the shell shock. Maybe they're like, oh my gosh, how do I think about this? What does it mean to me? And I think Steve after this is going to explain a little bit more, having read all 91 pages of a 91 page document about what it means for them. But I think we can talk, you know, outside of those who are still figuring it out, almost everybody sees changes. About a third think that they'll major changes. One or two think it's an existential crisis for them. And, you know, about the same number, about another third, or I think there'll be minor changes. I think that there are a few who think there'll be no impact on them. They do tend to be companies without marketed products who may fall into your head in the sand category, but they're really a minority. A few more things just to point out. The big companies, so let's just call a billion plus in, in revenue. Most of them see major changes. And, you know, even those who are in the sort of 100 million to a billion category, most of those see major changes ahead for them. I just want to break it down a little bit more in terms of what the specifics are. So two or three things. First of all, this idea of starting out in a small indication and then going for your drug and then going to a larger population, that's sort of I don't know if I can say it's going to go by the wayside, but a lot of companies are going to change course on that. More than half of the respondents said that they would go for the largest population first. And then a few said that the large first was always in the plan, but that's going to be the dominant approach. 
most companies, more than two thirds of the companies are rethinking their next indications. And so the whole idea of a pipeline and a product, that strategy, a lot of people have got to rethink that all the way. You're going to have to do parallel development if you want to do target multiple indications so that you can get them within the time window before price setting or price negotiation sort of sets in. And then one more piece of data before you ask me anything is on orphan indications, because obviously that's been a, a very big part of the picture here. You know, one third of respondents are completely changing their orphan strategy and another third are thinking about it. Yeah. So, so on the on the orphan thing, it, you know, it's really interesting because there are two different kinds of changes that companies are going to make in response to the IRA. One is companies that have an orphan indication are not going to develop a second orphan indication or a third or a fourth as they might have done, because doing so means that they're going to lose their orphan exclusivity, their exemption from the IRA price setting. The other thing that's interesting if there are companies that are looking at it and saying, well, we could have gone for either a common indication or an orphan indication in the past, we might have gone for the more prevalent indication first because it's a bigger market, right? But now they might look at it and say, and they seem to be, according to our, our survey, look at it and say, well, maybe we should just do the orphan indication because that will be exempt from price setting forever and will be more, more valuable. I think overall, the big picture on this is that companies are looking and investors are looking at the economic incentives, how the economic incentives have changed as a result of the IRA, and they're going to change the way that they develop drugs and which drugs they develop as a result of that. To everybody who's listening to this podcast, it might be like, duh, of course they are. But to policymakers and to a lot of people, I think in Congress especially, that will come as a surprise, and it's and it's somewhat contested because I think there are members of Congress who voted for this who firmly believe that the things that companies were saying before they passed it were not true or were highly exaggerated. There are still people who are saying that, but I, I think that this survey is another indicator to say that no, this the really the commercial landscape for drug development in the United States has been dramatically changed by the IRA. It's going to affect companies no matter how big they are, no matter how small they are. It's going to affect the valuation for their drugs. It's going to affect which drugs get prioritized in pipelines and a host of other things. I want to just give a few of the comments, the write-in comments that people have. Quite often, we get the numbers, but quite often those give you the flavor of what Steve's just been saying. So one respondent said, we will very likely stop pursuing indication expansion for small molecule therapies. This will raise the bar on the molecules that we advance, leaving some promising compounds deprioritized because of the risk value equation. And another said the nine versus 13 gap, which relates, of course, to how long people get protection before price settings comes in for NDA molecules, mostly small molecules and BLAs, which is mostly biologics. The 9 versus 13 gap will create perverse incentives and create greater risk that certain popula patient populations will not be addressed. And then we can see it's going to affect business development. So, Steve, you talked about valuation of products and companies. And I've got one person saying it is chilling. We have been developing a small molecule drug and expect our ability to partner this drug 
to have gone down significantly because of the IRA. The other point I would bring up, because I, I think it's really important always to look at these things from the perspective of patients, is the IRA creates an incentive, a very powerful one, for companies to prioritize investment in biologics over small molecules. And from the perspective of a patient, that's almost always um, worse. You know, a patient would almost always prefer, it's always going to be better for them, if it's possible, to be treated with a small molecule drug, an oral drug that they can take, that they can give to the pharmacy counter and take it home, versus something that has to be infused or injected. And the costs and the disruption to their lives and everything favor small molecule drug development. And this law is going the other way. All right. Now, Steve, true to form, uh, very late in the day, one day last week, uh, CMS dropped a 91-page bomb on us, guidance on the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, what's it like going through a document like that on deadline? Oh, it's 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 kind of a high-wire act. Look, you know, that you've got to go through 91 pages and figure out what's important, what's new, what you can say that's definitive. It's very dense. I came out of it with three things that I learned, okay? One is that the initial price that HHS will suggest in the price setting process will essentially be a reference price based on the prices of therapeutic alternatives modified, at least in theory, by supply side considerations such as manufacturing and R&D costs. It's not clear how they're going to go about doing this and whether it's going to be a process that's going to be done, in, if you if you want to call it that way, in good faith or not. but that's how they're saying they're going to do it. Two, all formulations and versions of a product subject to price setting with the same active moiety are going to be covered by a single price. That means that if a company had more than one BLA, they'll all be covered. Also, if there's a generic or a biosimilar competitor for any formulation of a product, then all formulations will be exempt from price setting. That's a little complicated, but it has interesting implications if it isn't changed before this is put into effect. For example, if a company creates a follow-on version of a biologic, maybe going from a daily uh, infusion to a weekly or monthly or maybe even quarterly dosing, and it has patent protection that blocks biosimilar competition for this new formulation, if the original formulation has biosimilar competition, the new one will be exempt from the price-setting provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm sure there are companies that are going to game that out. It's quite interesting. Three, there's some clarity about the exemption for a drug that's approved for only one orphan indication. All indications related to a disease, for example, for different patient populations or forms of the disease, are going to be considered as a single indication for purposes of the exemption. That's really important uh, if you're looking at, for example, um, there are plenty of drugs that are developed for different populations, uh, cancer population, for example. And um, there was a concern that if you piled on multiple in indications within the same disease that you would lose the orphan exemption. And CMS is saying, no, that's not going to happen. And in fact, they also say in the, in the guidance that they're aware of the fact that there are concerns about the impact of the IRA on orphan drug development, and they're considering ways um, to mitigate it but they don't say what those are. And interestingly, they also don't ask for comments about it. I know I said I was going to say three things, but there's a fourth thing, which is what, what was left murky about the bill. And there are plenty of things that were left murky. One of them, uh, which I think is important, is that 
the guidance seems to exempt CAR T therapies from price setting because they fall under an exemption for products that are blood or plasma derived, but it's not explicit about that. And there are different ways to read the guidance. You could either read it to exempt uh, CAR T products or not. And I think that's something that a lot of people are going to be interested in going forward. All right. Well, clearly a critical issue facing the biopharma ecosystem. Next week, we have a webinar on the topic. So uh, March 30th, you can go to biocentryira.com to learn more. Steve, you will be moderating this, yes? I, I will. And we've got an all-star cast, six people from kind of across the spectrum from investors to um, regulatory and legal experts to um, CEOs of companies that are going to talk about how they're navigating it and how they're advising other companies to, to navigate the I-Ring. Excellent. And we'll be putting that on with Putnam. What else are you watching out for in Washington this week, Steve? Okay, well, there, there are three things that are on my watch list. One is we might see a decision in the Texas abortion case. Uh, leaving aside the implications for women's reproductive health, the case could have really significant implications for FDA and companies that are regulated by FDA because it could create a very low threshold for using the courts to overturn FDA approvals at any time. So there's a lot of concern about it at FDA. And of course, there's also concerns about access to abortion drugs. Wednesday, Senate Health Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders is going to interrogate Moderna CEO Stefan Bansell at a hearing with the not-too-subtle title, taxpayers paid billions for it, so why would Moderna consider quadrupling the price of the COVID vaccine? Moderna's taken some steps in anticipation of the hearing, including committing to ensure that after the federal government stops paying for COVID vaccines, every American will be able to receive a vaccine with no out-of-pocket cost. And the Senate Finance Committee is going to have a hearing on Wednesday with HHS Secretary Becerra on the HHS budget. He's going to get criticized by Republicans about the CMMI model on accelerated approval. And there's also going to be discussion of the Biden administration's plans to ramp up Medicare drug price setting is also going to be on the table. All righty. Let's dig into some science. The distillery comes to you monthly. Karen, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So um, every month we deliver uh, 20 short summaries of translational papers that propose either new targets for therapeutics or new compounds that could be therapeutics themselves. Just to highlight uh, a couple of the things we've been seeing in the literature, one was a paper out of Mass General proposing TBK1, a serine threonine kinase that integrates signals from cytosolic nucleic acid sensors to be uh, something that could help treat solid tumors by increasing cytotoxic responses to immunotherapy. So this was a new target that could help in cancer immunotherapy for solid tumors. Um, another one that caught my eye was a paper from some groups based out of China that proposed an MFN1 agonist for mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, so they identified a small molecule agonist of the outer mitochondrial membrane protein, um, MFN1, that could help restore mitochondrial function in settings of drug toxicity, uh, ischemia reperfusion injury, and also in genetic diseases such as Charcot-Marie tooth disease. And then just another thing I'll point out, one thing we've been following is, of course, innovations for COVID. And 
something that was pointed out in a commentary we were in last week was around the need for sort of variant proof approaches that could even potentially take on a SARS-CoV-3. Um, and that one strategy for that is host targets, because obviously, you know, the host side of the equation changes much more slowly than the pathogen does. And so we actually did a data bite rounding up some of those approaches we've been seeing in the distillery that ran last week. Um, and one I just wanted to highlight was a paper we found proposing TLR4 inhibition specifically for post-COVID cognitive dysfunction, so for long COVID brain symptoms. And um, it was just interesting because TLR4 had been investigated for sort of acute COVID settings. ASI had sort of given their uh, compound to be investigated in that setting, then discontinued it as the COVID landscape changed. But a Brazilian group sort of showed that there could be a role for TLR4 inhibition in long COVID by decreasing microgliosis and synapse loss. And so that's part of this area we're watching around host targets for infectious diseases in general and COVID in particular. All right. And coming up this week, Karen, you're taking a look at engineered T-cell companies. We chatted a little bit about this. I'm looking forward to it. I know that your analysis is slicing up the landscape by axes of risk. What do you mean by that? And what are you finding? Sure. Well, it was really interesting and fun to take a look at the engineered T-cell therapy space for cancer therapies. And to look at the different areas of risk, and what I mean by risk here is sort of uncharted territory that companies are taking on when they are engineering these therapies. Uh, one side of that is indication risk. So the, the lowest risk would be sort of a, a B-cell cancer where you have um, cell therapies approved already. Uh, obviously, solid tumors representing sort of a riskier path there. Then looking at things like the tried and true autologous approach versus branching out into allogeneic and in vivo uh, delivery approaches that have potential benefits in terms of the um, ease and cost and speed of delivery, but have less precedent to them at this time, looking at different receptor types, and also looking at antigen choice in terms of uh, how sort of well-validated an antigen is. Okay, I think this is really interesting and important because risk changes over time. So it's very important to get a snapshot. And quite rightly, one of your parameters of risk is that when something is marketed, you suddenly massively de-risked it. Right. So I think at the outset, maybe not everybody would have looked at autologous and allogeneic and said the risks are as different as they look right now because there are autologous products that have been approved. And I think the allogeneic field thought they may have a smoother path. And we've talked about that recently. But at the same time, you're capturing innovation there. So you're capturing new targets. So again, the minute somebody comes out as they have with a BCMA targeted CAR T, suddenly BCMA is a little bit de-risked there. They've shown that it can work, at least in multiple myeloma. So, you know, it's a an exciting thing, an important, not small, I will say. I've edited but it is not small a, a data deck and an amount of information in a really nice analysis. And very, very important also to think about how to break down the risk across, as you say, the parameters of what's the way it's getting into patients, right? And what are the targets? And then it's the underlying technology. So great in-depth piece there. 
Yeah, and just to give a, a little taste of what we're finding, slice up the uh, programs that are in the clinic, um, and then also looking at preclinical programs. And all of this is for companies that have been founded in the last five years, so representing sort of next generation approaches. And one of the really interesting findings was that the majority of companies uh, that are preclinical stage have some kind of allogeneic or in vivo program in their pipeline as in the works. Um, most of the programs in the clinic, however, are for autologous CAR-Ts. But it's just interesting seeing the shift among companies that are not in the clinic yet, how heavily weighted they are toward having some of these allo or in vivo approaches in, in their decks. I will say what one interesting finding, because we literally grid out, you know, where all these companies are, is that there's no company that's going purely in on allogeneic for solid tumors. That square is reliably empty. So all of this and more coming out this week. Excellent. Thanks for that, Karen. Good to get you back on the pod to get into some of this uh, meaty, meaty stuff. And uh, the distillery, just a reminder, we, we also have a very cool tool on our website, biocentury.com, distillery dashboard. You can fiddle around and uh, find all sorts of cool translational tidbits. And before we go, just one more event for your calendar. It's Bioequity Europe coming up in Dublin, May 14th through the 16th. That is our spring conference. Do go to bioequityeurope.com to register, learn more. It is bound to sell out, so don't wait. Last year's conference in Milan did sell out. Well, thanks for tuning in. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.